And welcome to today's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday, July the 29th, here at Colin Chance House, Worcester. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this edition, and with me to read the articles is Moira Lowe. Our sound engineer is John Plush, and we are ably supported by members of the admin team led by Carol Hartle. A warm welcome to all listeners, especially new ones. I hope everyone enjoys our offering. It's certainly still good to be back following so many months of lockdown. In addition to news items, you'll hear some useful telephone numbers including theatres ready for when they're all open, readers' letters, birthdays and obituaries are still included, but following listeners' requests, they are nowadays placed in a different spot following the closing music. So if you wish to hear them, please stay tuned then. We shall also have our usual thought for the week. Don't forget that recordings are usually available on podcasts, but at present talking books are not available on memory sticks, but rather on CDs and tape. Also, do let us know your birthdays so that we can greet you specially when the time comes. This service is free to users. But if you would like to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR51DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone, Worcester, that 01905 767766 or you could add a note to your wallet. If there's a problem with any aspect of your receiving recordings, please use the answer phone on the number I've just given and leave a message to that effect. So we'll start with birthdays. And we have two The 5th of August is Susan Gibb and the 8th of August is Eva Shepherd. Now we'll have Thought for the Week, which Moira will read to you. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Thank you, Moira. And now some useful telephone numbers. So, the telephone number for Colin Chance House... I'll repeat that one, Worcester 767766, NHS Direct 
111. Out of hours, GP medical assistance, 0300 And that's from 6 o'clock in the evening till 8 o'clock in the evening. Worcester Hub, Worcester 765765. Crime Stoppers, 0800, treble 5, treble 1. Worcester County Council, here to help. Worcester 768053, option 3. Community Risk Team, Fire Safety, 0800, Zero three two double one double five. Nuisance calls BT one five seven two, and I know from my own use, um, Plusnet also operate that service on the same number. Worcester Live, Worcester six double one four two seven. Malvern Theatres. Zero one six eight four eight nine double two double seven Norbury Theatre zero one nine zero five double seven zero one five four Walking Group for Visually Impaired People zero one six eight four eight nine one 297 or 07920144614 and finally Samaritans 116123 and that's a free number. So now we'll start with the headlines and the headline articles. And I'll ask Maura to give us last Friday's. Okay, so my headline is £30,000 fine for workers' roof fall. A city firm has been fined £30,000 after a roofer fell and broke his hip. Worcester-based AES roofing contractors was handed the fine by magistrates after failing to comply with work at height regulations after one of its workers fell from a garage roof in Worcester. The roofer broke his hip, fractured his foot and damaged his knee in the fall in February last year. Kidderminster Magistrates Court heard how the worker had accessed the roof using a ladder and was working on his knees with his side to the open edge. He was fitting a rubber trim, but without any protection in place on the edge, he fell from the roof. An investigation by the Health and Safety Executive found that the work was not suitably planned, and although the company owned edge protection and suitable equipment to provide access to the roof, it was not used to carry out work on the garage. There was no suitable audit system to monitor what equipment was being used. AES roofing contractors of Ankerdyne Road in Worcester pleaded guilty to breaching Regulation 4.1 of the Work at Height Regulations 2005. As well as the £30,000 fine, the company was also ordered to pay £510.30 in costs. 
Speaking after the hearing, Health and Safety Executive Inspector Aaron Fisher said, Falls from height remain one of the most common causes of work-related fatalities in this country and the risks associated with working at height are well known. Companies should be aware that unsafe work at height without suitable and sufficient controls in place is not acceptable. The Health and Safety Executive will not hesitate to take appropriate enforcement action against those that fall below the required standards. In the HSE's recent report on incidents in the last year, it showed falling from height caused 35 deaths at UK workplaces. The second most common cause was people being hit by vehicles, which caused 25 deaths. Last year saw 39 people killed by accidents on UK construction sites, which were three fewer than the previous year, but more than five-year average of 36. AES roofing contractors did not respond to our request for a comment. Now, Saturday, July the 24th, the headline... Plank threat to female paramedic. Drunk patient kicked police officer in the groin. A drunk man with a bloody head injury threatened a paramedic with a plank of wood before kneeing a police officer in the groin. Lee Wood of Park Street, Worcester, held the 40-centimetre-long piece of wood over his head as if he was about to bring it down on the female paramedic who was trying to help him. The 31-year-old defendant admitted common assault of an emergency worker, paramedic Kelly Jenning, and assault by beating of emergency worker P.C. Pulteney when he appeared before the city's magistrates. Paramedics responded to a 999 call at around 4.15am on June the 12th, attending the defendant's address. Ralph Robbins Landricum, prosecuting, said paramedics had been advised Wood was intoxicated with a head injury and was drifting in and out of consciousness. But when paramedics arrived at the door... Wood raised the 40-centimetre piece of wood over his head in a threatening manner. Paramedics left the scene, contacting police for assistance. Mr Robbins Landricum said, When police arrived, Wood shouted, I have a taser. During his arrest, Wood was described as resisting officers. Mr Robbins Landricum said he shouted at female officers to get away from him as they were just disgusting. He also attempted to spit at officers and a spit guard was also applied, said the prosecutor. While being transported to the police station, he kneed an officer in the inside of his thigh, causing the officer immediate pain. The defendant admitted in interview he had threatened officers with violence. He recalled paramedics attending his address but was not sure why. He told officers he didn't want treatment and he didn't want them in his house and had no intention to use the plank of wood to attack paramedics. 
The last matter recorded against him was on November the 1st, 2017, when he received a suspended prison sentence for resisting an officer, a Section 5 public order offence, and committing a further offence during the operational period of a suspended sentence order. Mark Sheward, defending, said his client's last conviction was nearly four years ago and that the paramedic statement made it clear Wood had not tried to hit her with a piece of wood. He said, she says he held it over his head and could have brought it down if he wanted. That's not the same as trying to hit them with it. Mr. Sheward continued, he does accept he's an alcoholic. As a consequence, he has paranoia, which is alcohol-induced paranoia. He hears voices. The defendant himself said in court he has liver damage and had been told if he does not stop drinking, I won't live to see my 33rd birthday. On the night in question, he had drunk a considerable amount and had fallen over, suffering cuts to his cheek and head, Mr Sheward said. The case was adjourned for sentence until August the 17th for a full pre-sentence report exploring the possibility of an alcohol treatment requirement. In the meantime, he was granted unconditional bail. Okay, this is my headline from Monday, July the 26th. A special place for Lydia. A fundraising page for an inspirational volunteer and teacher has been set up following her death at the age of 42. Lydia Petit died on Wednesday and a fundraising website to raise money for her children and funeral costs set up on Thursday night had raised more than £2,300 of a £4,000 goal by Friday evening. Her niece, Lauren Eldon, said she was a true inspiration. People were in awe of her. Everybody loved her. Miss Petit was born in Worcester and lived in the city, as well as Droitwich and Pershaw before her death. She worked as a teacher at St Peter's First School in Droitwich and Blackminster Middle School in Evesham, before becoming a full-time carer for her three children, including her son who has Down syndrome. Lauren said she dedicated her life to being the best mum to her three gorgeous children. In her spare time, she was a volunteer, including for Read Easy Pershaw and Evesham, helping adults learn how to read. A lot of people will know her from that. A true inspiration and will be missed by so many people. The fundraising group entitled In Memory of the Beautiful Kind Lydia and written by Lauren said, On Wednesday we lost our beautiful, kind-hearted, selfless and strong Lydia. Most importantly, three heartbroken children lost their mum, the best mum in the whole world. Lydia was a shining star and touched the hearts of anyone who met her. She was one in a million. She was an inspirational teacher and the reason why I started teaching myself. She was an incredible mum that was always having fun and making amazing memories with her children. She had the patience of a saint and a heart of gold. For those of you that know her well, life has been incredibly cruel to Lydia. Everything that could have gone wrong did, and you don't deserve any of it. I hope you know how much we truly love you and admire you. 
Rest easy, Lydia. I hope you find the peace you truly deserve and you feel as happy as you made everyone around you feel. We would love to give Lydia's beautiful children a special place for them to visit, a place that represents how special and warm Lydia is. Any donation would be appreciated and all the money will go towards funeral funds and creating that special place for her children. The fundraising page can be found at gofundme.com forward slash f forward slash in memory of the beautiful kind Lydia. Now Tuesday, July the 27th. The headline, Police Pelted in River Escape. Wanted man arrested after watery bid for freedom. A wanted man threatened to throw bricks and rocks at police trying to arrest him after going into a river. The man was seen in the River Severn near the bridge in Worcester wielding a branch, but one witness also described him trying to escape through a sewer pipe. A witness said the man in question and a young woman he was with were arrested by two undercover police officers along the riverside path. The man attempted to flee custody by diving topless through the stinging nettle-infested river bank and hid in the undergrowth by the river. He even attempted to escape through a sewer pipe along the riverside at one point. He was using the large stick and a big rock to ward off the authorities who were trying to arrest him. His female associate fled the scene. I saw the whole thing. It was hilarious. West Mercia Police has confirmed that at around 11.10am on Friday, officers from the proactive CID team found a male who was wanted by the courts for failing to appear. A police spokesman said, in an attempt to avoid arrest, the male ran and jumped into the river. The male spent around an hour in the river, refusing to get out, where he threatened to assault officers by throwing bricks and rocks at them. With the assistance of Hereford and Worcester Fire Service, the male was eventually removed from the river and was arrested. He was then presented to the courts. A spokesman for Hereford and Worcester Fire and Rescue Service said four crews attended, two from Worcester, one from Evesham, one from Malvern, plus the water first responder team from Malvern and the service drone from Ledbury. They were called at 11.22am to a water rescue from the River Severn by the A44 in Worcester. A spokesman for the fire service said... A man self-extricated from the river, assisted by fire service personnel, and was handed over to the police, who were also in attendance. There were no casualties and the incident was closed at 12.40pm. Cold water shock, which can affect you on even the warmest days, is indiscriminate and will affect all age groups. There are also other hazards such as hidden objects beneath the surface of the water which you would not be able to see. 
between January the 1st, 2011 and December the 31st, 2020, there were 355 incidents of rescue or evacuation from water, excluding flooding, in Herefordshire and Worcestershire. Okay, my headline is Family Living in Fear of Attacks. A petrified Worcester family are living in fear after repeated vandalism and break-in attempts at their home. Mother of two, Emma Stone, aged 27, of Mulberry Terrace, Tolodyne, says she believes she knows who is behind the sinister attacks. Miss Stone lives with her two children, aged five and seven, and has recently been signed off from her work at Sainsbury's by a doctor due to these incidents. She said, I'm stuck in a house with two children who are petrified. I'm petrified. My kids are constantly worried and crying, staring out the window to make sure everything's okay. I cannot afford to keep replacing tyres and windows. Miss Stone said attacks have taken place for three years, but have ramped up in recent weeks. The most recent incident coming on the night of Friday, July the 24th, when her front window was smashed. She now parks two miles away from her home, having had her car window shattered on two previous occasions. She added that her mother's car has also been vandalised twice in recent weeks, while neighbours fear for their own property. Miss Stone stated that she had been in contact with police, the council and her housing agency, but is no closer to finding a solution. I'm going round in circles, she added. West Mercia Police said... Our officers are investigating the crime and have been in contact with the victim. Unfortunately, at the time of the incident, the victim was out of the county and so a face-to-face meeting couldn't occur. We are investigating and will be visiting the victim as soon as can be arranged. And finally, from today, Thursday, July the 29th, Gold Joy for Cities Matt. Worcester Swimmers Olympic Gold. The city's swimming club is on the crest of a wave after Worcestershire's Matt Richards helped bring home Olympic gold in Tokyo. Growing up, Droitwich-born Matt Richards attended Bishop Perone College and began his swimming journey at age five at Droitwich Leisure Centre. He moved on to Droitwich Dolphin Swimming Club when he was eight and then Worcester Swimming Club at age 10. Chris Rimmel from Worcester Swimming Club said, It's amazing. Little Worcester Swimming Club has produced an Olympian. We're so proud to have been a part of Matt's journey. At 13, Matt joined an elite programme in Wolverhampton, going on to break countless British age group records. Aged 16, he became the 2019 European Junior Champion in the 100m freestyle. Team GB won gold in the men's 4x200m freestyle relay in the early hours of Wednesday morning. That's July the 28th, thanks in part to a heroic effort from 18-year-old Matt. The win almost broke the world record and was Britain's first 4 by 200 metres freestyle relay victory at the Olympics since 1908. 
The swimmer's proud parents, Simon and Amanda Richards, said they brought, bought their son a paddling pool in lockdown to help him train after restrictions meant he might have been out of the water for 10 weeks. The Olympian had to get creative by building a swimming treadmill at his home using the inflatable pool, a harness and a bungee rope. Mr Richard said, We attached some bungee cords to the garage wall and he was in there swimming hour after hour in his wetsuit, keeping a feel for the water. Mrs Richards added, It helped him mentally. Thankfully, Matt was then invited to train at the Bath National Centre under strict COVID-secure protocols. Mr Richards took to Twitter yesterday morning to post his victory celebration. He wrote, Doesn't everyone drink beer at 4.45 in the morning? Mrs Richards said she was mostly just feeling really sick throughout the event but she added it was just utter relief at the end when it all came off. Well done, Matt. And now a sports article about Worcester City. Right direction. City boss Harris refusing to get carried away after impressive Starbridge demolition job. Taskmaster Tim Harris insists Worcester City have some way to go to meet his exacting standards, despite waltzing past one of the region's most fancied side. Goals from Luke English, Chris Sterling, Archie Muirhead, too, and Dan Westwood saw City come back from behind to leap over a two-tier gap and topple Southern League Premier Central heavyweights Starbridge 5-2. The Glass Boys have recruited a host of big names, including some from National League clubs over the summer, but Harris's charges played with zest and energy, forcing mistakes and pouncing on them and had a penalty saved. Rival gaffer Mark Yates called his sides show embarrassing. It was City's fifth win from six friendlies, but Harris played down any hype ahead of his first season in charge and was quick to earmark areas for improvement. Pre-season is all about the build-up and progression, he said. We're progressing nicely as a side and getting a nice work ethic out of the boys. We scored some really good goals and that is really pleasing from my point of view. We're going in the right direction, but I genuinely feel it is going to take us longer than I first thought to get it where we need to. We are not getting carried away. The first game of the season is the one that is important and it's about consistency week in, week out, putting in the performances we saw against Starbridge. The pleasing thing was we had a reasonably large crowd in and we showed them what Worcester City is all about. Asked which areas he felt needed addressing, Harris replied, The structure... There were one of two situations alarmed me and they can only be ironed out on the training ground. 
with the Tamworth friendly being called off next Saturday, and we have deliberately not arranged another one, it gives us Monday, Thursday and Saturday to get in three training sessions to work in our shape. We want to make sure everyone in the squad knows their roles and responsibilities. At the moment, they don't quite know where to be when the ball is on the other side of the pitch, when to move up. It is that fine-tuning. It will take a while to perfect it, but if they work as hard as they have today, then no one will be disappointed. Most of City's team is signed up now, but another who has definitely played his way into Harris's plans is striker Chris Sterling. It's all about attitude, and when you see him, he scored against Starbridge and got two against Britain Ferry. He might have had a hat-trick there, added Harris. He has lost some weight and is showing a great desire. That is what my sides are all about. You have to fight for every single ball, and Sturlow has done really well. I have been very pleased with him. Meanwhile, the boss is unfazed by the new city season, will kick off a day later than scheduled and at a different venue. The campaign begins with an away FA Cup extra preliminary round tie against Coventry United and due to the Butts Park Arena being unavailable, it will now take place at Daventry Town on Sunday, August the 8th at 2pm. Right, now some readers' letters, so I'll ask Moira to read a couple of her choices. Okay, my first letter is from Julie Reynolds of Worcester. Dear Editor, we received a text from Seven Trent to inform us that they are experiencing difficulties with supply in our area. I understand that we are in the middle of a heat wave and that people will be using more water with padding pools, showers, garden irrigation and the like. Obviously, this will mean that there is more of a strain on the water supply. However, the last time I looked, the largest river in England runs through the middle of our city. I haven't noticed the level dropping that dramatically. Have I missed something? Is it leaking? I know that I am somewhat cynical, but why can't Seven Trent just do what we the customers pay them for and provide sufficient clean water? I'm certainly no politician and cannot claim to understand the logistics of running a multi-million pound company. However, Seven Trent was obviously privatised in the late 1980s along with many other historical local authority services and other public companies. This means that colleagues are paid a not insubstantial amount of money to do a job. This also means that the management and directors are paid an enormous amount of money. They are paid by us, the customers, in which case I say do your job and stop bleating because the weather is a bit hot in July. Right, a letter from Monday of this week and it's from C. Stanley and headed Nothing Pointless in Animal Prize Ban Call. Dear Editor, 
I was disappointed to read Christian Barnett's report, July the 16th, of Councillor Neil Lawrenson's call to ban the archaic practice of using animals as prizes at fairgrounds and on social media. It is the high-handed Tory criticism that's so disappointing. It was reported that Councillor Andy Roberts accused Councillor Lawrenson of bringing the council into disrepute by his proposal and thinks it is frankly outrageous. And Councillor Jim Carver was offended and hoped it was not a dig at the traveller community. No, Councillor Carver, it is not. Such a ban should serve as a timely reminder for them to adapt to the 21st century. And as for Councillor Mitchell's uncertainty of what the aim will achieve, he can be assured there are many, many more than just a very small part of the community who would find favour in such a move. City Council leader, Councillor Mark Bayliss, mistakenly believes it is a case of virtual signalling and wants the council to focus on what really matters. There are, of course, many important matters on the council's agenda. That is just how it should be. But through their harsh criticism... Those Tory councillors have demonstrated a lack of respect and compassion, and that's very telling indeed. Councillor Neil Lawrenson did not deserve to be disparaged in this way. He has raised a genuine issue on behalf of those who actually care what happens to those living creatures once they leave the fairground. Shame on those Tory councillors. They obviously do not understand nor appreciate the strength of public feeling on such a matter. Okay, my letter is from John Richards of Worcester. Dear Editor, I have read with some amusement about Andy Stafford's cunning plan to counter the herring girl menace by employing a falconry expert to try to scare the maritime avians away. On a previous occasion, Chris Yeager, formerly of Worcester Live, had hired the chief falconer of Warwick Castle to bring his prize birds to dazzle us all outside Worcester Cathedral for his summer festival spectacle. The superlative bird of this collection was an American bald eagle, a massive creature with beak and talons, one would think more than a match for any of our urbanised KFC girls. This was not the case. Herring girls are an intelligent and aggressive species that can react en masse in a coordinated way to any perceived threat to their chicks. Things did not improve for the poor American eagle who left the scene a bit more bold than he started. As Uncle Sam picked a delicate path down the Severn, not only did he confront assaults from left, right and below, there was an unexpected assault from high above. St Andrew's Tower at the time housed a nestling pair of peregrine falcons who were similarly defensive of their progeny. I should remind readers that peregrines are the fastest creatures in nature with diving speed of over 180 miles an hour. When the poor beggar landed, he couldn't wait to stick his hood back on, get back in the van and go back to Warwick Castle. (laughs) Now, addressing directly whoever is offering this gull-clearing service... 
Do you really want to bring your hawks to Worcester? Come and have a go, but are they hard enough? (laughs) And my second letter is from Andrea Springthorpe, who is a supporter of Breast Cancer Now. And it's headed Afternoon Tea to Help. Dear Editor, as someone who has recently lost a loved one to breast cancer, I've seen firsthand the devastating impact that this disease can have. Four days before the UK went into national lockdown, I lost my beautiful mum to secondary breast cancer. I was 11 weeks from giving birth to my daughter, Sophia, Lily, and she would have been my mum's first grandchild. The COVID-19 pandemic has been an unprecedented situation for us all. But losing my mum and grieving during this time has been incredibly difficult. I desperately want to do everything I can to support Breast Cancer Now, who provide essential support services so that people living with the disease like my mum are supported the whole way through their breast cancer experience, but they can only do so with your help. Since the start of the pandemic, Breast Cancer Now have faced huge disruption. Their researchers lost thousands of precious hours in the labs and they've been forced to cancel hundreds of their community support events. That's why I'm joining the thousands of others across the UK and having an afternoon tea this August. Whether it's a cuppa in the garden or delivering delicious treats to friends, anyone can take part. And no matter how you choose to have your afternoon tea, all money raised will help Breast Cancer Now provide world-class research and life-changing support for anyone affected by breast cancer. Fundraisers can register to claim a free fundraising pack at breastcancernow.org forward slash cuppa. And now we'll go on to some of the articles from this week. So I'm going to ask Moira to read the first one. Okay, this was mentioned in headline. This is a man seen wading waist deep in the river. And there's a picture of it, but it's a little bit blurry. Um, Rescue boats were scrambled after a half-naked man was spotted wading out into the river near Worcester Bridge. A witness said he was crossing the main bridge in Worcester when he saw a man in the water at around lunchtime. He described multiple police cars, possibly as many as ten, fire crews and rescue boats arriving at the scene. When he looked to see the source of the commotion, he noticed a man stripped off to the waist, wading out about 20 foot from the riverbank, walking in the direction of Worcester Cathedral. The witness, who did not wish to be named, said the man in the water was carrying a tree branch as tall as himself and that when he came to the bank, he was helped out of the water by people from the emergency services. The guy was walking about with what looked like a great big branch of a tree, holding it like a walking stick and wading out with it. He held it against his head and seemed to be having a go at the crowd of people on the bridge. He didn't seem like he was in any trouble. He was standing up. He wasn't fighting the water. 
I saw him chatting with the police officers quite merrily. I was quite surprised he could wade so far out. I expected the water to be deeper. We reported in January how a man jumped into the flooded river from Worcester Bridge in nothing but his boxer shorts. Police, fire crews and ambulances rushed to the scene, parking near the car park to Worcester County Cricket Club, as boats circled on the river looking for him. Several police cars, ambulances and fire crews attended the scene, and boats could also be seen on the water. My first article is from last Friday, July the 23rd. Service paves way to help homeless. A game-changing homelessness service has provided 38 of the county's rough sleepers from returning to the streets in the last year. Worcestershire Housing First, which is run by the City's St Paul's Hostel, has so far helped 38 homeless people move off the streets and stay in accommodation. The service, which was set up in February last year, has a 100% success rate with nobody housed using the service returning to rough sleeping. Jonathan Sutton, Chief Executive of St Paul's Hostel, said the service has helped house and return round the lives of some of the city's most complex and difficult rough sleepers, including one person who has spent 25 years in and out of addiction, prison and rough sleeping, who has now managed to hold his own tenancy for more than a year. Mr Sutton told Worcester City Council's Communities Committee he believes the success of the scheme in Worcestershire will put the county at the front of the queue when it comes to more government funding in 2023 and beyond. Housing First is based on the concept that a person sleeping rough should be offered a permanent home as soon as possible, with support provided for as long as it's needed. It differs from other types of support that see rough sleepers go through different types of temporary accommodation in order to prove they are tenancy ready before moving into a home. The service costs around £250,000 a year and is paid for until March 2023 through a patchwork of sources including government funding, council cash and business rates. Councillor Louise Griffiths heaped praise on the service for its amazing work and said managing to do it during a pandemic was nothing short of miraculous. She said it was staggering to see certain people in the city receiving help and rehabilitation from the service. Housing First works. It works in the UK, in Europe, and it works in the US. It's something that we need to look at more seriously to look at reducing homelessness and reducing rough sleeping. The number of new coronavirus cases recorded in the county has continued to rise according to the latest figures. A total of 3,252 cases were recorded in Worcestershire in the week up to July the 18th, a 63% rise compared to the previous week. Cases in the county have increased 175% in the last fortnight and 1,165% in the last month. 
The latest figures give an idea of the number of people with coronavirus in the county in the week before the majority of government lockdown restrictions were lifted in England on July the 19th. The highest number of cases among the county's six districts remains in Worcester, where 734 cases were recorded in the last week, 38% more than the previous week. The number of cases in Worcester dropped slightly from 764 in the week up to July the 16th, but still remains the highest in the county. Elsewhere in the county, 679 cases were recorded in Bromsgrove in the week up to July the 18th, where cases increased by 57% compared to the previous seven days. A total of 518 cases were recorded in Witchhaven, which includes Evesham, Pershaw and Droitwich. Cases in the region increased by 60% compared to the week before. The biggest week-on-week increase happened in Morven Hills, where cases increased by 98% to 357 cases in the week up to July the 18th. A total of 429 cases were recorded in Redditch in the same week, rising by 93% when compared to the week before. In Wire Forest, cases increased by 74% to rise to 535 cases in the week. The continued rise in cases in the last week follows a month in which numbers surged by a huge 1,800% in Worcester and 1,100% across the county. An even bigger surge took place in Morven Hills, with cases rising by 3,220% from 5 on June the 10th to 166 a month later. The number has since doubled in the last week. And now a bit of a warning. Toxic plant spotted. An extremely dangerous plant has been spotted in Malvern, although it has been seen in Worcestershire already. Giant hogweed, which is toxic and can cause severe blisters and burns, has been seen in a derelict car park off Edith Walk. Fortunately, the car park is fenced off, meaning pedestrians cannot get close to it. It also appears to have been sprayed with weed killer, but it's not clear who owns the land. A spokesman for Malvern Hills District said the council was checking to see if it had been reported and if their team knows about it. We have previously reported how the plant has been spotted in two waterside locations in Worcestershire. Experts have verified that the giant hogweed has been found growing along the banks of the River Severn near Ombersley. There have also been three patches of the extremely toxic plant growing along a waterway in Garlford, Malvern. If touched, the sap of hogweed causes phytophotodermatitis in humans, resulting in blisters, long-lasting scars and, if it comes in contact with eyes, blindness. These serious reactions are due to derivatives in the leaves, roots, stems, flowers and seeds of the plant. In 2015, Malvern woman Tracy Brooks said she was in the worst pain of her life after her arms and hands flared up in painful rashes and inch-high blisters when she came into contact with hogweed. 
The dangerous plant has a thick green stem with patches of purple and white hair scan growing from 12 to 20 feet tall. It also has thick green leaves that can grow as large as five feet wide and white flowers whose heads can grow as big as two and a half feet in diameter. The first signs of dermatitis appear one to three days after contact with the sap. After 48 hours later, large blisters will start to arise, which will later turn into brown scars, which can last between two months and six years. To see which areas are affected by giant hogweed, the Biological Records Centre's iRecord system, Watts Shed, has created an interactive map showing all the locations for giant hogweed sightings in the UK and people can report sightings which will be verified by experts. For more details, visit watshed.co.uk forward slash giant hyphen hogweed hyphen map. They sound like triffids. Mm, nasty though. Yeah. More images have emerged of the ongoing demolition work at the former Worcester News offices. The University of Worcester is transforming the Hilton Road site into a teaching space after plans for its partial demolition and renovation were approved last year. Under the plans, parts of the sides and rear of the building will be demolished and redeveloped, with the university planning to use it for science teaching. The university bought the Hilton Road site back in 2019 and is transforming it into teaching facilities. The large two- and three-storey 1965 building, designed by Austin Smith Salmon Lord Partnership, will become a spacious, flexible, modern teaching facility. Designers also say it will be flooded with natural light from the impressive north light roof structures. The fully refurbished building will include specialist facilities for teaching medical and health professionals and will be a significant addition to the university's seven campus whose focus is on health, well-being and inclusive sport. City Council planners approved the designs back in April this year and the building will include a state-of-the-art anatomy laboratory a suite of GP simulation rooms and a range of general seminar and teaching rooms. There will also be offices, breakout spaces for group study and a cafe. The building is set to open at the end of 2022. The university is hoping the new building will provide a centre for its planned three counties medical school, which is currently progressing through the General Medical Council's approvals and assessment procedures. Midlands firm DSM Demolition Limited is behind the scheme. The initial work was co-funded by the University and the Worcestershire Local Economic Partnership Getting Building Fund. During last summer, Worcestershire LEP and the Secretary of State for Housing and Local Government made a £3 million grant to the University for infrastructure and green works at the former Hilton Road Industrial Estate. Now a bit of Worcester's history. Humble roots of city's first mayor. During the summer of 1621, a piece of parchment was being prepared in London for a new charter for the city of Worcester. The calfskin had been stretched, dried, scraped and pumiced, ready for the wording to be carefully written 
giving the city many privileges and clarity on how it was to be governed into the future. Meanwhile, the city continued to prosper and continued to be governed in what is often seen as a confusing and complicated way. Discussions in the chamber turned to the new charter and who would become the first mayor of the city. This post would need to be filled by somebody from the Great Clothing or High Chamber. Edward Herdman was the High Bailiff at the time and was a man who loved the city, which helped him from the moment he rode through Sidbury Gate in 1592, aged 27. Edward moved to Worcester after his father, Thomas, had died at the family farm in Napleton, Kemsey. The last will and testament of Thomas Herdman shows Edward missed out on the farm and livestock worth £29 and most of his prized personal possessions, which all went to Robert, the eldest sibling. So Edward arrived in Worcester with nothing more than a coffer of I- and ideas to make money in the thriving wool trade in the city. Not being a man of great wealth, he would have inhabited a humble dwelling away from the main streets. Around this time he met Joan Colley, the wealthy widow of Thomas Colley, brewer of the city and member of the chamber. Edward and Joan married in 1595 at St Andrew's Church. They lived in Key Head, and archival evidence shows Edward enlarged the Collie Brew House and even purchased a family pew within the church. After their marriage, they moved to the nearby parish of All Saints in 1618, living in a large house opposite the church. And this shows Edward had moved up in the world. Broad Street was once one of the main roads into the city and these were always occupied by the rich and important members of society. A memorial inscription in the church, erected by Rector William Cleveland, 1757-94, to described its location, a large old timber house opposite to All Saints Church North Door. On ye beam of a wide gateway are ye initials of his name, dated 1618. This front is going to be destroyed to a large depth to open ye avenue to ye new bridge. He gave a silver chalice for ye altar, 1635. As the 17th century dawned, Edward became a well-known citizen, taking on the role within the chamber once occupied by Joan's dead husband. The chamber discussed and made all the important decisions for the city, And it was this chamber that had voted at the start of the year to ask King James I for a new charter. On July 31st, 1621, St Andrew's church bells called the city elders to the Guildhall. This time, the chamber had to decide on who should become the first mayor of the city of Worcester. The chamber order book for July the 31st shows Edward Herdman, now the High Bailiff, was nominated as the first mayor. Make nomination of new officers therein, 
Therefore, the House proceeding to a nomination of them did nominate and make choice of Mr. Edward Herdman to be the first mayor and his name to be put in the new charter. From writing later in his life, we know Edward Herdman loved the city right up to his death and the prestigious role he was nominated for, and he never forgot the city that had given him so much. So he had moved from a humble yeoman to being the most important gentleman in the city government. A blue plaque will be erected to Edward Herdman as part of the main Charter 400 celebrations in the autumn. Events will be taking place over the summer, including a special guided tour organised by Discover History. The Charter 400 tour looks at the city in 1621, the way it was governed and the personal story of Edward Herdman. And following on from that, um, city is set for a tourist boom. Worcester is set for a tourism boom after the government announced that double-jabbed EU and US travellers will be allowed to enter the country without quarantining. Previously, only travellers who received both their vaccinations in the UK were exempt from the 10-day isolation period, but EU and US citizens will soon be joining them. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps announced that the new rules will be in place from 4am on Monday, August 2nd. And Worcester is set to benefit with tourists flocking to see the cathedral and the city's historic buildings, such as the Greyfriars and the Commandery, or to follow in the footsteps of the city's favourite son, Edward Elgar. City MP Robin Walker is optimistic about the impending rule changes. He said, this is another welcome step on the path to unlocking and returning to a situation where we can allow tourists in, which can only be a good thing for local businesses. We will only let people in if they are double vaccinated and if it is one of the recognised vaccines. We have seen with the Three Choirs Festival and the Elephant Parade the fantastic tourism that Worcester has that will attract visitors from far away shores to the city. Lucy Hodgson, Chair of Worcester City Council's Place and Economic Development Committee, is thrilled about the prospect of a tourism boom. She said, Certainly at Worcester City we would welcome USA tourists with open arms. This week we have had the Three Choirs Festival and I know American visitors have come in previous years to the concerts. American tourists, as well as tourists from other parts of the world, are very important for day visits to the county, as well as those that stay longer and will boost the city economy and also the wider county economy. Staff at Worcester Travel Agents arranged my escape on Mealcheapen Street are equally excited. General Manager Jennifer Lynch said, We are really pleased to hear that borders for England could open for the US. This will most certainly increase the visit numbers for the Worcestershire area. It is important that we continue to see a rise in inbound tourism. This keeps our hotels, leisure attractions, local restaurants and bars within Worcestershire in demand. Hang your head in shame, mate. A foul-mouthed drink driver who was more than three times the limit with a child in his car was told to hang his head in shame. 
Daniel Humphreys of Coventry Avenue, St John's, Worcester, swerved across the road, ran a red light, tailgated an unmarked police car and swore at the officer who arrested him, an outburst heard by several children. The 33-year-old, who appeared before magistrates, had already admitted drink driving and using threatening or abusive words or behaviour following the incident on May the 27th. The evidential reading taken at Worcester Police Station was 120 micrograms of alcohol in 100 millilitres of breath, 3.4 times the limit. First, Gareth Thomas, chairman of the bench, told Humphreys, Behaving like that in front of children, hang your head in shame, mate. The defendant had been driving in Newtown Road towards the A4440 at around 7pm when an officer in an unmarked car became aware of a silver Toyota Corolla behind him as he approached the junction with Canterbury Road, watching as the car went through a red light before mounting the nearside curb. Ralph Robbins Landricum, prosecuting, said the Toyota proceeded to drive close to his rear bumper and was struggling to drive in a straight line. He formed the opinion that the driver might be under the influence of drink or drugs, said the prosecutor. As Humphreys took the first exit, the officer did a complete loop of the roundabout, emerging behind the defendant, pulled him over near Cartwright Avenue in London Villages. The officer described the defendant's eyes as being glazed and looking like they were watering. He was red in the face and appeared to be unsteady on his feet, said Mr Robbins Landricum. There was a small child in the car. The defendant was arrested for drink driving. Humphreys swore at the officer and told, and told him to call back up. Five to six young children witnessed his behaviour. The officer warned that if he continued to swear in front of children and members of the public in the area, he would be arrested for a Section 5 public order offence, said Mr Robbins Landricum. At 7.15pm, Humphreys was arrested for that offence. Children at the scene were heard to ask the defendant to stop resisting. And when further officers arrived, an open bottle of VK raspberry and peach was recovered from the rear passenger seat. Humphreys had two relevant previous convictions, driving with excess alcohol in 2010 and failing to provide a specimen for analysis in 2015. Only the second offence was relevant for the purposes of sentencing. The 2021 matter came within 10 years of that conviction. For that original offence, he was fined £300 and banned from driving for three years. Magistrates made a one-year community order to include 20 rehabilitation activity requirement days, a six-month alcohol treatment requirement and an electronic curfew for 12 weeks. The curfew will run daily between 8pm and 7am. 
The bench banned him from driving for 40 months and ordered him to pay costs of £135 and a 95 victim surcharge. Okay, this is um, a feature article that's in today's paper. Um, so this weekend coming, Witchenford will be opening its scenic gardens once again, this time in aid of village charities and amenities. The village has been opening its gardens every other year for over 20 years and in that time they've raised more than £60,000 for local charities, which is an amazing amount for a village of around 400 people. Organiser Sandra Kelly said, We are really pleased to be able to welcome people back to the village after all the trials and tribulations of the last 18 months. This is mainly an outdoor event which reduces the COVID risks, but we've also brought in practical changes to ensure everyone's safety. There are 12 lovely gardens to suit everybody, a therapeutic garden for day centre service users, a working farm, an old forge, an award-winning NGS garden. Some are very large with formal and informal areas and woodland, and one even has a productive uh, vineyard. Several surround beautiful grey two-listed black and white houses. Besides the trees and flowers, there is plenty more to see, as there are also chickens, ducks, geese, bees, and one even has some pigs, plus wildflowers and birds. Most gardens have seating, so you can just sit and enjoy the surroundings. In addition to the great variety, what these gardens have in common is that they are much loved by their owners. Sandra added, We enjoy welcoming visitors to our lovely village and we know how many people enjoy their visit and take home ideas for their own garden. We are very lucky to live in such a beautiful area and many of the gardens and even some of the car parks have stunning views over orchards and fields towards Worcester, the Malvern Hills, Breeden, Whitley Court, Droitwich, the Cotswolds, Woodbury Hill and beyond. Lunches are available and as always at village events there are plenty of opportunities to enjoy tea and homemade cake. The gardens of Witchenford are open on Saturday July the 31st and Sunday August the 1st from 11am to 6pm on both days. Entrance to the event is £5 cash only for a two-day wristband. Meanwhile, a reminder that there are three gardens opening up this weekend as part of the National Garden Scheme. So 5 Beckett Drive, Northwink, Worcester, WR37BZ, is open on Saturday, July the 31st. A garden described as so beguiling, it comes with a warning. A truly enchanting garden and one of Worcester's best-kept secrets. And this garden is open from 2pm to 5pm and admission is £4. On the same day, a tropical paradise garden will be open in Stourport. Begun five years ago, the owner's plan was to put together a garden with a decidedly tropical feel to include palms from around the world with tree ferns, bananas and as many other strange and unusual plants from the warmer climes that would normally be considered difficult to grow here as well as a pond and a small waterfall. 3 Oakhampton Road is open from 10 to 6.30. Admission is £3.50. The children are free. And finally, in Droitwich, 30 Shell Road is open on Sunday, August 1st, where as well as a 200-year-old style and a 300-year-old olive tree, visitors can expect afternoon teas with silver service. 
The garden is open two till five. Admission is £3.50 and children are free. Sounds good to me. Mm. The next article doesn't sound good, especially if you happen to be living in Hallow. Roadworks take an immediate toll. Frustrated drivers were caught out and forced to U-turn, causing what one resident said had been absolute chaos when roadworks arrived on a busy city main route. Among those were tradespeople, who said sat-navs had not warned them and they had lost work and money. The roadworks to fix a sewer pipe to the new housing development in Main Road in Hallow started yesterday, and this article was on the 23rd of July, beginning very quickly as unsuspecting drivers kept arriving at both ends where the roadblocks were in place. U-turn points began to develop at Ladygo Lane, one end, near Ladygo Stores, and Pinchfield Gardens at the other. When a reporter arrived at around 1pm, queues sometimes built up as angry drivers spoke with workmen at the roadblocks, and at various times there was at least one car turning every minute. Plumbers, who didn't want to be named, and were sitting in a van at Lady Go Lane Turning Point, said, I'm not being funny, we've got here, followed the sat-nav, now realised it will take 45 minutes to get to the job we were going to when we thought we were five minutes away. We've called and the job has been cancelled. We've lost money because of this. Residents said the closure was reported in the press and there are signs to let drivers know, but one said it's been like this all day, absolute chaos. The roadworks are to fix a sewer pipe to a new housing development and are expected to last six weeks. Worcestershire County Council's highways team and developers Piper Homes said the work has been timed with the summer holidays to minimise disruption. John Fraser, head of highways at Worcestershire County Council, said... It always like this one day, whatever the roadworks are, as people do try to chance it, thinking it won't be closed. Generally, it settles down after this. It's on one network and Google it was closed, so it will depend on individual sat-navs. If people aren't use, using live traffic information or haven't updated, then that will be the issue. Satnavs will always carry the message people should follow any road signage. We've asked the developers to beef up the warning signage. That could be better. Piper Holmes said, We're always keen to minimise the impact of our construction work on local communities. Unfortunately, in this case, leaving a portion of the road open during the very deep drainage works was not an option due to safety risks it would pose to motorists and pedestrians. A Worcestershire County Council spokesman added, The closure has been planned for the school holidays so as to minimise disruption. However, we recognise that this is a busy route into the city and disruption will occur. There are advanced signs warning of the road closure and additional signs will be provided at the time of the closure. A seven-year-old Worcester boy is running more than a marathon this month in memory of the uncle he lost to pancreatic cancer. 
Ifa Exel, a pupil at Northwick Manor Primary School, has run a mile every day throughout July with Dad Gavin to raise funds for Cancer Research UK following the sudden death of Uncle Anthony Watton in September 2020. He was aged just 63. Mum, Victoria Exel, revealed Oliver had smashed his initial £150 target, exceeding £600, with the tally growing and mammoth effort continuing. Even three-year-old sister Isabel has joined in on her scooter. We're all so proud, said Mrs Exel. The illness was quite short and the death hit everyone hard, particularly Oliver because he thought a lot of his uncle Anthony. They were very close. He's always enjoyed running and he did a healthy living module at school. He went out running with his dad a few times who came up with this challenge for him to do. They came up with this plan to raise funds together and Oliver has not faltered once. Even through the heat wave, we were up and out at seven o'clock in the morning to do it. There's no stopping him. We want to raise as much money as possible, but also awareness. The one thing we have all discovered is that pancreatic cancer is one of the worst. It was shocking how late the diagnosis was. He didn't realise it was what he had because the symptoms are not the sort that you would bother a doctor with. The telltale signs were there, but it is so hard to get diagnosed, and by that time it was far too late. Tragically, it was a matter of weeks, and it was just so awful for everyone involved, so the more awareness we can raise, the better. Even Oliver has said he just wants to help people to try to get through that kind of sickness, and he would run another 31 miles to do it. I think he will keep up the running. It is a big thing for him and he wants to raise as much money as he can. My husband is talking about taking him to do some park runs. To donate, head to https forward slash forward slash fundraise cancer research uk dot org slash page slash Oliver's 31 miles. Anger at 3% NHS pay rise. A former NHS manager says NHS staff deserve better than the 3% pay rise announced by the government. The UK government said NHS staff in England will be given the pay increase in recognition of their extraordinary efforts. But both the Royal College of Nursing and former NHS manager Lynn Denham have pointed out what little impact the rise will have in real terms. Councillor Denham, who represents the Cathedral Ward for Labour, said, This is about how much we value people in our society. Someone who has the skills and training to save lives is more valuable than, for example, an investment banker. Councillor Denham, who was also a former hospital pharmacist, pointed out that the pay increase would amount to very little. It's important to remember that public sector workers have been subject to a pay freeze for several years. A 3% rise on a low salary is much less money than a 3% rise on a high salary. The NHS needs our wholehearted support and proper investment in the workforce. It was a point echoed by the nursing union, who pointed out that the rise was lower than the rate of inflation and effectively a pay cut. General Secretary and Chief Executive Pat Cullen said, 
nursing staff will remain dignified in responding to what will be a bitter blow to many. But the profession will not take this lying down. We will be consulting our members on what action they would like to take next. The RCN has been campaigning for a 12.5% pay increase for all nursing staff. Health Minister and Bromsgrove MP Sajid David said NHS staff are rightly receiving a pay rise this year. We will back the NHS as we focus our efforts on getting through this pandemic and tackling the backlog of other health problems that has built up. I will continue to do everything I can to support all those in our health service who are working so tirelessly to care for patients. Two Worcester care homes named in report into the horrific number of care home deaths due to COVID say the figures should not be taken at face value. The Care Quality Commission, which is CQC, report revealed between April last year and March this year, 475 care home residents died with COVID-19 in Worcestershire. Two Worcester care homes were named in the report. Perry Manor had 20 recorded deaths and Latimer Court had 16. Both care homes, however, said the figures may not be entirely accurate as the recorded reason for death was often based on judgment rather than fact. Overall, 92 individual care homes in the county reported at least one COVID-19-related death. Latimer Court in Darwin Avenue off Newtown Road said they were deeply saddened by the loss of life and admitted it was a challenging time. A spokesman said, We send our condolences to all family and friends affected. Throughout the pandemic, the elderly and vulnerable have been more susceptible to COVID-19 and sadly some of our residents lost their lives to this awful virus. It has been a challenging time with very little known about the virus and no testing available for a number of months and therefore the reason for death was not always known but often based on judgment rather than fact. A spokesman for Perry Manor next to Worcestershire Royal Hospital the home with the most deaths in Worcestershire, added, Our thoughts and condolences are with everyone who has been affected by the pandemic. It is important to caveat any figure with the fact that in the early stages of the pandemic, we registered all losses of residents with even the mildest symptoms as possible COVID-19 deaths. The criteria for how to identify a COVID-19-related death before testing was widely available, will vary between care home operators and it is possible that we are not comparing like with like. It is also worth noting that Perry Manor is a larger than average care home which is rated as outstanding by the CQC. Councillor Adrian Hardman, Deputy Leader of Worcestershire County Council with responsibility for adult social care said, the past 16 months have been an incredibly hard time for all of us for many different reasons. Any loss of life is a terrible shame and we have sadly seen deaths from COVID-19 in care homes locally, regionally and nationally. I would like to offer my personal condolences to anyone who has had someone close to them pass away in a care home due to COVID or who has passed away having had a positive test for COVID within 28 days prior to their passing. I know any death will also have had a big impact on care staff who have worked tirelessly throughout the pandemic and have also had to adapt incredibly quickly in ever-changing circumstances. 
These really have been unprecedented times and nothing that we've ever faced before in our lifetime. Sadly, a significant number of deaths in care homes across the county occurred in the early stages of the pandemic, prior to extensive testing being carried out locally and nationally in hospitals and homes. We all recognise that many care home residents will have had a health condition that will have also increased their vulnerability to this infection. I'd like to thank all our care home and staff for everything they've done throughout the pandemic to keep residents safe and also residents, their families and friends for their continued support. Now from Friday, July the 23rd, tragedy of drug driver. A drug driver caught twice in a matter of weeks was grieving the loss of his 13-year-old sister after the pandemic prevented him returning home to Portugal for her funeral. Ricardo Matos admitted drug driving, first in Pheasant Street in Worcester and the second time just over a fortnight later in Fourgate Street. The 25-year-old warehouse worker of Vauxhall Street, Worcester, appeared before city magistrates following the drug driving on January the 31st and February the 16th. The reading for the first drug driving was 11 micrograms per litre of blood, more than five times the limit for the cannabis metabolite. On the second occasion, the reading was 4.2, again over the limit of 2. Ralph Robbins Landricum, prosecuting, said Matos was behind the wheel of a Volkswagen Passat stopped by officers on patrol in an unmarked BMW in Pheasant Street and that they could smell cannabis from within the car. Because the defendant failed a roadside drugs test, he was arrested and the evidential blood sample was taken at Worcester Police Station. The defendant, who was cooperative with police on both occasions, had one previous matter recorded against him, driving whilst disqualified from September the 3rd, from which he was fined £265 and his licence was endorsed with six penalty points. Ian Parsons, defending, said his client had pleaded guilty to both matters and had volunteered the fact that he was facing another charge so the case could be brought forward and he could be sentenced for both offences together. The solicitor said the results were not back from the first drug driving so he would not have known whether he was over or under the limit when he was caught a second time. Mr Parsons said his client had been smoking cannabis heavily at the time and had not been back to see his family in Portugal since the pandemic. He said on December the 31st, his 13-year-old sister passed away in Portugal. He was not able to return to Portugal to go to the funeral. He has been very upset about what happened and has taken cannabis to help him cope with life. Magistrates banned him from driving for one year, fined him £133 for each offence and ordered him to pay £135 costs and a £34 victim surcharge. Well, now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. My thanks to Moira, 
and to John for reading and recording, and to Carol Hartle for leading our vital admin provision. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll come back for more next time. So best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all the team. Goodbye. Bye. So the obituaries now. Roger Burford passed away at Worcester Royal Hospital on July the 6th, 2021, aged 67 years. A service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, July the 29th at 10.45am. Flamley flowers only. Dorothy Lois Denton, formerly Nelms. Peacefully passed away on the 11th of July 2021, aged 93 years. The funeral has already taken place. Dennis Griffin of Drake's Broughton passed away peacefully on the 12th of July 2021, aged 85 years. The funeral service will take place at the Vale Crematorium, Fladbury, on Tuesday the 3rd of August at 11am. Doris Mary James passed away peacefully at St Richard's Hospice on the 13th of July 2021, aged 90 years. A service of committal will be held at the Vale Crematorium Fladbury at 12 noon on Monday the 2nd of August, followed by a service of thanksgiving at 2pm at Lansdowne Methodist Church, Malvern. Family flowers only. Don Montandon, driving instructor, aged 90, fell asleep the 20th of July 2021. No funeral details are given. Christine Chris Powell, nay Atkins, passed away on the 13th of July 2021 following a short illness. Restricted numbers due to COVID means funeral attendance is by invitation only. Family flowers only. Geoffrey Thomas Ball. It is with a heavy heart that we announce the passing of Geoffrey Thomas Ball, beloved husband of Christine. For those who wish to join us on this sad occasion, we will be gathering at the Vale Crematorium on 9th of August at 1pm. Janice Evelyn Shellam, or Jan, former manageress at Colston's Bakery in St John's, passed away peacefully on June the 27th, 2021. The funeral service will be at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, August the 6th at 1pm. Amy Spaulding passed away on July the 20th, 2021, aged 99 years. Funeral service at Westall Park, Holborough Green, on Monday, August the 2nd at 2pm. Bright colours to be worn and no flowers by request. Irene Andrews, née Cullis, of Broughton Hackett, passed away peacefully on Sunday, July the 18th, 2021, aged 95 years. A cremation service will be held on Wednesday the 11th of August at 11am at the Vale Crematorium. Family flowers only, please. Elsie Martha Portman, 
passed away peacefully at home in Malvern on 17th of July 2021, aged 92 years. Funeral at Worcester Crematorium on Monday 9th of August at 11.30am. Family flowers only and please wear bright clothes.